I was sure one day I would be able to make this bulletproof case for the power of volunteerism. And sure enough, Harvard made the case for me. With a study earlier this year interviewing 7,000 people over the age of 50, the Harvard School of Public Health learned, quote, people who volunteer live long, healthier lives, end quote. I knew it. Some experts believe it's actually time to recommend it along with diet and exercise, end quote. And here's my favorite quote in the study. Volunteering was associated with 38% fewer nights in the hospital. If this is even close to true, sign me up. And so today we talk about purpose, about volunteering, and about how to live forever. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. Okay, I'm not kidding. It's time for folks to understand that living a life with purpose is good for you. And it's time for nonprofit leaders to welcome, embrace the army of the do-gooders ready to help and to ensure that the experience is five-star all around. Now, for small organizations, volunteers are everything. Some organizations are totally volunteer-run. And for others, volunteers answer the phones, work at galas, donate unique skills, and yes, serve on boards. But volunteerism is imperfect. I see it all the time. How can it be more perfect? I sought out Pamela Hawley to help us with this very question. Pamela is the founder and CEO of Universal Giving, an award-winning nonprofit helping people to donate and volunteer with top-performing vetted organizations all over the world. What a fantastic idea. Pamela is a winner of the Jefferson Award, which is the Nobel Prize for Community Service. I didn't even know that existed. That is awesome. She has awards galore, credentials too long to list. Universal Giving has also been acknowledged three times on Great Nonprofits' annual top nonprofit list. And to date, Universal Giving has matched more than $31 million worth of volunteer hours. And in Pamela's spare time, that's a joke, you can find her on her daily blog called Living and Giving. But best of all, you can find her here right now. Pamela, welcome. Thank you, Joan. It's a pleasure to be on your show. So let's start at the beginning. You had this idea. Tell me about what prompted it. Well, goodness, Joan, I don't think we ever are really kind of a brilliant visionary that just kind of has an idea. I think that ideas come naturally from our lives. And for me, it was something that transpired over many, many years, actually, probably over 20 years. Um, it first started um, on a visit to a, a village in Mexico where I saw extreme poverty. And from that, I started volunteering in my backyard. I started volunteering abroad. And then once the web came, I fell in love with the web and I was like, oh my gosh, I can help scale volunteering everywhere. So I think it was really having the idea came from years and years of life experience. Well, it sounds like it also came from not only life experience, but from the emotional um, and the emotion and the gratification you got from that and sort of wanting to syndicate that, correct? 
That's true. I don't think that I can live my life without volunteering and nor have a career that is without doing something about service. It's just not something that my soul can really live with. So once I do see something like that, like that extreme poverty at age 12, there was no turning back. There really wasn't a sense of maybe I can avoid this, escape this, or don't want to see this. <laughs> um, it pretty much set the course of my life. Uh, having said that, that didn't mean that my early professional career was easy by any means. Well, it sounds almost vocational-like, right? Yes, it it, did, it is. It is is very much, it's a calling for me. So uh, was it hard at first to get this off the ground? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's always hard to get an organization off the ground. And I think it's always, you know, a challenge is to make sure that it goes forward and excels. Every day you got to have that fire. You got to get up and you, it's not just about getting it off the ground. It's about sustaining it. I think a lot of people think that startup mode is hard. It is, but it's also very exciting. I think the ability to sustain an organization after year 10, after year 12, after year 15, it's kind of like one of those things like a marriage, like it's old hat, but you better keep working on it and not take it for granted, right? I think that's really critical. I'm not married yet, but one of the things I think is very important is that you're constantly working on that relationship and you're doing the same thing with your organization. You're constantly working on it to try and nurture the organization to get better and better and better. So when you had this idea, and I asked this about another, um, uh, another guest I had on the show, um, and I've also read a lot about Wendy Kopf and how she got Teach for the America off the ground. Where did your initial funds come from? Where were you, you know, sort of, how did you get initial funding to get this off the ground? Who did you ignite with the same enthusiasm you had? You know, I talked to a ton of people and got a ton of no's. I probably, I remember trying to record how many no's I got and I stopped because I was getting demoralized. <laughs> you know, when you're first starting out, you get a ton of no's when you're starting something out and you're like, who believes in this? Um, but then you focus on where you can get the yeses. At the beginning, for the first two years, I was extremely scrappy. I um, lived out of my home. We didn't have office space. All the interns came to my home or we met at coffee shops. For two years, we did that. So we basically had no overhead and everyone who was helping me get this off the ground was, was a volunteer. So basically, it was like blood, sweat, and tears of, of people. Having said that, that at some point we had to pay the engineers and the UI people. I used $84,000 of my own savings, which was huge for me. It was wow. just something that was just hugely daunting. You know, I've been saving for, you know, 10 years and working on that. And then um, you go to family and friends, but family and friends, I was too, I'm very conservative and I don't want to ask people until I first show that I've kind of what you say, put skin in the game. Yep. So we did everything pro bono. I used my savings for the first two years. And for the first two years, the only thing we expended was 84000 So that's either inspirational or like crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> it is crazy and inspirational. It's both. I look back on it now. And, you know, when you do that and you're in a nonprofit, you know, you don't get equity. You don't get payback, right? So your payback is your team, your day-to-day, -day, the accomplishments you're making, um, how you're serving the community. I mean, I think that's one of the hardest things is that no matter how long you've been in an organization at, at a nonprofit, you're not an owner. So you don't have equity that way. So you better make sure that your day-to-days are inspiring, that your team's excited, you're excited, and that you're moving forward new initiatives and innovation and helping people every day. And as long as you're doing that, then, then you'll be fine in sustaining your organization. So I want to dig in I, uh, at the end of the uh, of the podcast. I want to talk a little bit about your site and actually how it works. But I, I want to get right to the heart of things. Help listeners of mine discern a good volunteer from a great volunteer when they're recruiting. Well, you know, 
I'll tell you, what's exciting about our world is that there are a lot of requirements of volunteering, service learning classes. Actually, there's like probation where you've got to do community service. Like there's a lot of requirements around community service now. I think what you really want to look for is the people who sincerely love to do it. Finding that pure intent of, no, I really want to be here. I really want to learn. Having that humble sense. There's a lot caught up in volunteerism now. I'm required to do it. It's cool. My peers do it. What I really look for is, does your heart really want to do this? Not is it cool? Because when I was growing up, volunteering was not cool. I was considered a huge, huge geek. It was very painful for me. And so what I look for now that it's so popular, I look for people who have that genuine, sincere heart. Really look for that. Second, I would say is definitely make sure you have the right skills fit. Someone could have a great heart, but if they don't have the right skills fit, they're going to feel hurt or frustrated. You're going to feel like you're not getting done what you need for the community. You really do, do need to have that head and heart. It's, um, you know, people always say the right, often say the right things in interviews, and you really have to discern almost between the lines, don't you, when you talk to somebody, because somebody's going to say, I, I'm really deeply passionate about this. I mean, they'd be foolish not to say that, right? Yeah. I, I mean, somebody's not going to say, I think it's volunteering is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I certainly have had people come to me and say, you know, I, I've worked in corporate America for a long time and I'd like to, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to move to the nonprofit space and can you help me? And I take a look at their CV and they've never volunteered or served on a board a day in their lives. And you think to yourself, okay, where you been? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a tough transition from corporate to nonprofit because you can't just think everything's going to be rosy at a nonprofit. You know, a nonprofit is an organization like anything else. You need to dig in. You need to be a great worker, a great leader every day. You know, there's no there's no wiggle room for that. You know, it's it's got you've got to you got to work at that every day. Uh, You know, I was on the phone with my um, one of my recruiters this morning and I was coaching her and just saying, you know, look, make sure our mission, vision and values are in front of you every time you're on a call. And if you want to find out if someone is really going to be someone who has a great heart, a humble attitude in our organization, because we don't want people with, you know, attitudes, anything like that. So you have to have the, the values in front of you and ask them and say, here are our values. Which one of them resonate with you? And what, what we find is that some people who aren't really connected to their values stumble or they don't know what to say, or they don't know how to connect. Whereas the ones who are really connected to their values say, oh yes, I resonate with that one. So sometimes you can do that and it helps drive the right people to your organization. Well, I think what your point there is, is that some people just ask simple questions and you actually have to ask a question that makes people think where you get the answer you need, or you get, you get an answer where someone legitimately stumbles and you know that they're not the right person for you. So Mm. So lots of organizations ask for volunteers. I generally find that managing volunteers is a difficult challenge for people. There's this sort of hesitation about giving them too much. Uh, There's a fear that too high a level, excuse me, the too high a level of accountability might scare them off. what we're and then and then I perhaps there's also the I don't want to give away something important because I don't want the ball to drop. Where's the balance as someone managing volunteers? I am of the belief. I mean, when you think about like the ball dropping and, and you're saying you know worried that interns drop the ball, I have a strong faith in people. I am age agnostic. I do not believe that anyone should be restricted in their ability. I just don't. And so I, when I look at interns, I trust my recruiters. We're getting in great people, paid and intern, 
and I, I trust them. They might need coaching or things like that, but I've met 45-year-olds who can't execute. And I've met 80-year-olds that can and 22-year-olds that can. And so I normally, when we get our interns in, not worried as much about execution. I will say that it is important to have peers, executive assistants, operations people. There's different people that can swoop in to kind of help and help um, manage it. Sometimes we have business unit leads manage it, but someone does need to help coach them when they have answers. It really depends on the person, Joan. I mean, some of them are such self-starters, they can go on their own, and other people need daily coaching. And there's no right or wrong, but you definitely have to listen instinctually as to how to help coach each one. So I would recommend definitely give people high-level tasks if they can perform the kind of junior and medium ones first. Um, but if they're comfortable with the junior and medium ones and they, right. they are comfortable with that, keep them there. I think what you're also saying um, <clears throat> implicitly is that you have to be clear about what your what success looks like for volunteer, don't you? I mean, you can't just say, "Hey, can you get started on this for me?" Right? And good managers, whether you're managing someone who's paid or unpaid, right, can really work with someone, a man, a, a volunteer, an intern, or a staffer, and say, "Here's what I expect of you, and here's what success looks like." And I don't, and and you're saying to me that if someone has the heart to volunteer, that's what they want. That's not going to scare them away, is it? No, no. And it, it's not going to scare them away. Having said that, some of them are nervous coming in. So you need to be very compassionate about it. Um, every volunteer is so different. I'll tell you, I had a volunteer this summer. Very, very quiet. His name was Trevor. And I just was very quiet. And I tried to engage him or, you know, kind of, you know, ask where he's going to lunch or kind of talk to him. And you know what's so funny? We had 30 interns. He's the, the only intern from this summer who called me to thank me. And he called me. That takes a lot of guts to call the CEO, right? Called me bet. to thank me and was like, wrote me a thank you email. And now I'm coaching him on his resume, coaching him on his interviewing. And we like talk like every other day. And so it's, you know, everyone's, everyone's very different. I would say, do not be surprised. The people who seem super go-getters at work may not be as appreciative. The ones who are really good go-getters may have a phenomenal attitude. The people who are low go-getters might have the most amazing understanding of EQ and emotional quotient. Everyone has valuable things. Everyone does. Don't overlook that. Everyone does. And the temptation is to look at someone and say, oh, they're slow or, oh, they don't get it. You know, my belief is, is that you need to repeat things at least seven times until uh -huh. someone gets it. And if they don't get it, hey, guess whose fault it is? Me right. as CEO, you as the manager. Like we have to try and communication again and again and again and be patient because people hear things in different ways. So I would just say, you know, we don't want, we want to make sure that we understand the potential and also the needs of management for each person. And that's hard in summer because we don't, you know, have as much time when we have more interns, you know, to fully discern that over a two to three month period, but you still try. And then there's a lot of peers to help coach as well. Totally. Now, um, for my listeners, when did you first start your business? And since you've started, how many volunteers have you been responsible for placing? So 2002 is when we, you know, officially, officially started. Uh, I think the website was launched in 2003, but like 2001 actually was when I wrote the business plan right before 9-11. It was August 2001. So that was kind of a daunting time. And I'm like, I wrote this and wow. the world implodes and no one wanted to volunteer or give for the next two years internationally. Wow. They're like internationally. Are you kidding? Um, so that was not a popular time to launch, but I had my heart of hearts hope that the world would open up in about four years. It did. And it relaxed again, but there's a difference. Joan, we have probably at any one time 10 to 12 volunteers in our office, in our home office, 
which is just people volunteering here, helping in marketing, helping in corporate clients and relationships that we have because we're a social entrepreneurship organization and we help work with companies and their giving and volunteer programs too. Oh, I see. And so that's the volunteers I'm talking about in our office. And then we also match volunteers with nonprofits on universal giving sites. So we're a matchmaker on site for on site for volunteering. So it's kind of like match.com for volunteering all across the world. So we do that and we have matched more than um, $30 million worth of volunteer hours. And it's about 17,000 volunteers across the world. Yeah. Okay. That's, those are awesome statistics. We are talking with an expert on volunteerism. Her name is Pamela Holly. She's the founder and CEO of Universal Giving, an award-winning nonprofit that helps people to donate and volunteer with top-performing, vetted organizations all across the world. She is the winner of the Nobel Prize for Community Service, which is called the Jefferson Award, which I'm so excited to know there is one of those. And uh, she is sharing our expert, her expertise with us today. And... Um, and I wanted to I wanted to, to to just go back to this question because I do hear it so much, um, especially with you know CEOs, clients who are burned out, too much to do, right? They just have too much to do. And I'll say, so an intern maybe, a volunteer, and and they'll they'll com- they'll they'll complain to me that that they don't even have time to go look for a volunteer or an intern, no less manage them. Um, then they'll come up with an excuse like, well, they're, they're just, they're not reliable. I can't rely on somebody who's not being paid. What, what if they don't show up? What do you say to, to nonprofit CEOs where, where there are all these people out there ready to help and they're actually, um, uh, really, uh, resistant to the idea? I think there are nonprofit CEOs that are resistant to the idea of volunteers. And I, I would be compassionate in the sense that when you're in startup mode, you definitely need the right volunteers. And so I think when you're in startup mode, you have to have a religious focus. And in some ways we're in startup mode right now where I'm back in that focus because we're going through an exciting relaunch of our site and you're just, you're just dead focused. You're just, you're on that. And everyone knows that. And they're kind of banding around you when you're in that kind of situation. I think that, you know, for nonprofit leaders who are resistant to it, first of all, I would say, you know, I, I think I would say, and you should ask my team, I would say that I, I work hard, but I think my team also understands and that I practice and hopefully we all practice this balance. Um, I don't think that people should be burnt out. I don't believe in that concept. I don't think it's healthy for the organization or for the team. So if you work a productive day and you do that, I think that leaders and their team should be able to have balanced days. That doesn't mean there isn't like a big push or a big fundraising event or a big launch of a site when you aren't focused on certain things, but you need to make sure you're running that long-term marathon for the organization. So I don't, I think you need to stop your day at some point. You need to stop it and say, I did my top five things. I, and I, and I'm, I'm doing this actually for that. The health of the organization. The organization should see you working hard as a leader, but that's not why you're doing it. And they should see you doing that because they see that you're invested, but you're doing it because you love it. But you should, I really think, first of all, if you say you've got too much on your plate, you can't do volunteers, then work less two hours, get some good recruiters. Our recruiters often are interns. One of my top recruiters, she's 19. She was an intern with us. She now recruits she is excellent on values, excellent on EQ. She knows what our culture is. She brings in stellar people. And so I can either get overwhelmed or I can groom an intern to actually be a leader at organization. So you got to cut back your hours, invest in people, 
and scale it to let them go. And so I think it's important that you work less and work more um, smartly in order to run your organization effectively. Universal giving would not be here today without all the paid staff that have worked so hard and all of the volunteers we've had. I have um, an executive assistant from this summer who I, I, I'm literally, I end up crying at night, like, because I'm so grateful to her and she and I joke about it, <laughs> but she has done so much. She has excellent EQ, excellent IQ, and her execution is phenomenal. And I even tried to hire Joan and I can't, I can't get her. But the thing is, she's going back to school. She's 19. So I think we should let her finish her school. What do you think? I um, think we, I think we should. <laughs> and then you should go back after her. That's right. No, we're, we, we do. But I think that the point is, is that you have to work smart. And that means that you leverage other people and you give them an opportunity to lead in a place that's safe. And well, that's- and I just I think the other thing that's so important about that, and we found, you know, uh, you know, I ran a nonprofit for about ten years, and the volunteers and the interns are, you know, they're they're that, you know, you think about the pyramid of leadership, right? Those are the people who work their who work their way up. It's a it's a it's it's a pipeline if you do it right. And so I, I, you know, and I think that's something else that people don't really realize is if you do it all yourself, A, you burn out and B, you don't build any kind of leadership pipeline. And I see that with CEOs. I see that with board chairs. I mean, I see that everywhere I go. So, uh, so another question is, um, you know, clearly you're recruiting like crazy. What volunteer skills do you find are in the most demand? Boy, on the volunteer skills that are in most demand, I mean, I would definitely, if you're looking at it abroad, I think there's two different levels on, you know, you're looking at if you're going in, you know, building, you know, uh, let's say an irrigation system in, in, let's say like Tanzania or something like that, you've got to have some really strong technical skills. And I think that those things cannot be taken for granted. You definitely have to have some very strong technical skills. However, I've seen time and time again in my international travels where the brash American comes forward and says, I'm going to build X, doesn't include the local people and doesn't have that gentle heart. And I think you have to make sure that you know how to engage with the culture, study it before and be very, very humble. And that's true whether you're entering into an organization. It's true whether you're entering into, um, uh, you know, into anything, what you do is you've got to be able to be humble and, um, positive that way in whatever you do skills wise. So, so, I, come, think- so I want to come back to the word humble, but I want you to continue on. So some, some placements require very specific skills. And of course you talked about EQ, which is a skill or an attribute in itself. What other kinds of skills do you see as in demand? I would definitely say marketing. I think that marketing is very important. Um, I think executive assistance has become extremely important. Executive assistants actually operate as can operate as high level managers and do project manager at times as well. They totally can. Um, <laughs> the humble, the use of the word humble. I think you've used it about four or five times. You also use the word brash. Uh, do you find a challenge with people who want to volunteer and are coming from the private to the public sector. I referred, I used to refer to it as coming across the bridge to be with the little people where they would, right. They'd come across the bridge with their vast array of corporate skills and want to kind of give back. But in this kind of arrogant sort of way, do you see that? or, Or are you good at recruiting that out? You know, we definitely try and take a strong stance on recruiting. We talk to our recruiting team, um, both for, you know, paid and volunteers, um, watching for EQ at every moment. We're always watching for it because I think it's 
at times can be overlooked or start to become a lost skill. And you can't just have like the practical on the ground skills. And I, so I think our, our recruiting team, we're constantly discussing that from the point when team members, whether they're paid or volunteer enter in, you know, the whole journey we're, we're watching for that because that really kind of makes or breaks the sense of like love and positivity and the culture, right? So you're, you're, you should always be watching for that. I don't want to necessarily say that like for profits that, um, a challenging attitude or looking down on nonprofits come from for profits. Interestingly, Joan, you know what it comes from? It can come from for profits, but it can also come from certain schools. We actually have a list of schools that we love recruiting from Davis, Northwestern, Duke, um, uh, Vanderbilt, uh, Berkeley, um, San Francisco, USF. I mean, really like humble, hardworking people. They put their feet on the ground and they work hard. And so we look for like schools like that. I mean, I didn't know that much about USF. And I'll tell you, the people that we get there are phenomenal. They're used to working hard in life. They're used to working hard and they take their job seriously. So I would say we watch for the schools, but you know, everyone creates their own attitude in life, right? So for, for us, you, you can't say it's a school, you can't say it's for profit but that's up to them. Right. So, and that deals with all different kinds of influences, whether it's family, cultural, you know, you you never can know the full story there. You don't know it. So for us, we're just constantly watching that because we know that's so important in volunteering. Like you can't come in and just volunteer and build a river and have a frown on your face. Right. You can't do that. So that's that's, not going to work. It's not going to work. Well, and you also want somebody if they have a particular project, but then there is, okay, we need, I need an extra set of hands to put program books on the chairs at the gala. Can you help me? Right. You want somebody who's going to say no problem. You don't want somebody who's going to roll their eyes, right? Exactly. <clears throat> um, so in just the few remaining minutes that we have here, um, the key to retention for a volunteer, what's the key to retention? You know, I think you constantly have to be showing advancement. So, you know, you're giving people opportunities on the volunteers. I mean, we see it. We are constantly looking. I will tell you in our internships and returnships, which returnships are for more advanced professionals who are returning to the workforce. And on our internships and returnships, they're volunteer positions, but we are always watching to promote them to different areas. And then we often look to hire. So for example, um, I have an executive assistant right now who's paid and she was a volunteer from the summer and we watched her and we watched her skills and her attitude and we made her an offer and she's sitting by me right now. And so, you know, it's your job to make sure that you're providing that advancement for people and you're checking in with them and doing that. So for us, we, we bring them into paid positions, but I would say, even more importantly is with, you know, volunteers, just there's a volunteer, you have to show that appreciation. I am constantly leaving people voicemails, texts, and appreciating them in a genuine way. Every morning when I get up, I call one team member. So if I've got a team member, Bronte, she's a recruiter for us. She's in South Africa. I can't call her. So I leave her a voicemail, tell her what I appreciate. It needs to be genuine, but appreciation is important. Sometimes you need to take people out to lunch. Um, sometimes you tell them to go early. Sometimes you recognize them in front of other people about what they've done is good work. And sometimes that could be casually in the office or it could be in a formal meeting. You just need to have that, what I call an AF appreciation factor. You, and it shouldn't be fake. You need to make that genuine. It needs to be something you really, really love to do. And if you don't feel that, then make sure that you have someone on your team, maybe your director of operations, or maybe your director of volunteers, someone who genuinely loves to appreciate people. That's what you need to have. Well, and you're setting the bar very high for our listeners, I must say. So I'm sitting right now, we just have, uh, have 
one more statement and then one more question before we close. I'm sitting right now on your website, uh, which um, I was going to say it was really nice now that you say that you're redoing it. Perhaps I, I, um, I'm, I'm missing what's going to be fabulous, but I see 198 opportunities on your website right now from the Vietnam Children's Volunteer Program to um, protecting girls from sexual exploitation. I'm assuming that you have both U.S.-based and, ah, here, U.S.-based and international opportunities, correct? We do. Right. So you can easily go to www.universalgiving.org. And I did describe it almost as match.com for the um, volunteer space. You can actually search up something that you might be looking for. You can give a gift. You can fund a project. You can volunteer. Um, and these are vetted opportunities all across the world. And 100% of what you donate goes to the cause. And um, uh, that's uh, in and of itself quite inspirational. So speaking of the topic of inspirational, um, <clears throat> so I have this pet peeve that there are far too many people that are sitting on the bench and that they're not getting onto the nonprofit field. And um, we need them. And frankly, they need what the nonprofit space can give them um, in terms of that sense of purpose. Um, an inspiring story to leave us with or a surprising one, one that'll uh, ignite some people to get off the bench? Hmm. You know, gosh, I, I would have to say for me, my I, I kind of a surprising volunteer story was probably when I was um, – in the earthquake crisis in El Salvador. And I think what was shocking is at that time, it was in the early 2000s. And if we had had the earthquake, Joan, in, in, in California, we have enough building support that it really wouldn't have been a big deal. But right. in El Salvador, because of all the cement and all of that, everything just crumbled and thousands of people died. I think what was inspiring for me as I was in the back of a pickup truck, we had dated power bars and food that was like a year old. It was the only thing that we had. World Food Program couldn't get up to these villages. They were remote. Volcanic fluid was getting into the rivers. And these established organizations could not get up to the remote villages. And we were able to go up there. Their homes had been blown away. It was completely raining. And we could give them this food when no one else, no other organization would reach them. And at that point, I just remember my whole body feeling like, wow, my whole body, my whole life, my whole soul is being used to serve these 15 families. Like you can't get a pure lens in life to feel like no other organization will make it up this mountain and you and this random man in the back of a pickup truck and it's raining <laughs> and you're sopping and you're giving this food and it's like everyone's like crying for sadness and joy and like you all sit down and eat by the church where the church has been the whole steeple has been toppled off into the ground so you have this like denigration, but incredible inspiration that's burgeoning from it. I believe that negativity and, and downness never last. They don't. Um, inspiration will always upsurge. And I've seen that all across the world from all the genocide. So I never believe in it. I never buy into it. And I keep my mind very pure from it. And so to be in that, I was like, nope, I'm seeing the inspiration rise up. I'm seeing the good in this situation. And I'll tell you that bonding that happened there, I'll never forget that. It was like feeling your whole soul was used to help someone else. Well, I, 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 I don't even know how to follow that. Um, but it's, it's a testament to me, and, and as we wrap up here, uh, of, of why you do what you do, why people 
uh, you know, why there are you know, 10, 15% of the workplace is engaged in nonprofit work because it engages all of you, your head, your heart, your soul in ways that are, um, you know, that after 14 years in corporate America, I, I had no idea. And then once you step into it, there's no turning back. Um, Pamela, I can't thank you enough. I, I do hope that people um, come and visit you at universalgiving.org and see you as the resource that you are. I hope that in your words, what they really heard was take the time, make the time to engage thousands and thousands of people that are just, they're just waiting for you to help you in the service of your mission. Um, Pamela, thank you so much for joining us. Joan, thank you. It was an honor to be on your program today. Um, so this is the podcast Nonprofits Are Messy, which you can find on iTunes. My guess is that you have finished your commute. Perhaps you have finished your tour of duty on the elliptical machine, and we have finished our tour of duty in offering you what I hope will be um, a, a conversation that will help you to become more effective in your life as a nonprofit leader, whether you are on the staff side or the board side. Visit our podcasts. There are quite a number of them now at Nonprofits Are Messy. Um, we love ratings and reviews, not because we have an ego, but because it tells more people about uh, the fact that we're out there. You can also join us at our blog at JoanGary with two R's dot com, where we offer weekly insights only once a week because we know how busy you are. And... Um, until we meet again, thank you again for everything that you do to make, um, uh, to repair the world. And thanks again to Pamela for her good work. And we'll see you next time. Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.